Okay, what we've been doing is fill, what I call filling in the blanks. As that's on a Sunday morning, we try to talk about major events, the Garden of Gethsemane, the trial of Jesus, the crucifixion, and so on. We would consider major events, but there's a whole lot of little events. Matter of fact, it's, a, it's almost mind-boggling to see how much there is. Uh, I haven't talked about it all yet, and I've been talking for 40 years. And uh, there's so much there. Uh, it's amazing how the Bible in these books that we have, these few short books, has uh, filled in a tremendous amount of information. And the more I look at it, the more I'm impressed by it. It's just amazing to think about. And so I want to talk about tonight a trigger event. I'm going to explain what I mean with a real live example. Uh, triggering is just when something happens at, at a certain time, at just the right time, and uh, it's a very much a timing thing. It has to do with timing, and uh, it's when somebody, for example, pulls the trigger at just the right time, makes it exactly a series of events are created by doing that. Uh, I went to an eye doctor, one of them, and the second one, and the third one, and then the fourth one out in uh, Ohio. And uh, I thought, maybe I'm here to talk to that doctor. Well, the last time I was with him, uh, he said, uh, I'm planning your, your procedure for Friday the 7th, and I've been thinking about that. And he said, the only reason I'm not doing it this week, which would have been this week, is I gotta go away, so I'm not gonna be here. So you're gonna have to come on Good Friday. I said, no, I'm not coming on Good Friday. I said, uh, I'm gonna be busy. I said, I'm too busy. I got three sermons and three concerts to do, and they're a whole lot important, more important than what happens to my eye. And that created quite a conversation. But it was triggered by him saying, I got next week, I'm traveling, I won't be here, so we're going to have to push you a week ahead. And it landed right on Good Friday. And uh, that's a trigger event, that's what I mean. And so he changed the date, and I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And uh, then we had a very good conversation. He told me he thought that nature had blessed him, and I said, oh, no, God has blessed you. And so he started saying, I might get converted. I thought, well, we'll try anyway. So <laughs> but anyway, it's a, trigger, it's a trigger event where something happens, and the timing is just exactly right. And that creates the next event. If he'd have said, you know, like I expected he was going to do, we'll do it this coming Friday, uh, then nothing would have happened. But the timing was fixed, and uh, so <laughs> he wanted to do it on Good Friday. And I said, no. So uh, that, the timing has to do, of course, with God. God arranges things like that. And... Uh, so when we trigger something, when something happens and it triggers an event, uh, then we know the timing God is putting into it is just perfect. And we're coming to uh, look at some trigger events here leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. And we're going to go back a little bit and talk about uh, 
what I would call <coughs> the quiet man. The quiet man. I like quiet people. I like noisy ones too. So I like y'all. <laughs> but I like quiet people. My grandfather hardly spoke uh, to me once in my lifetime. I remember him speaking to me, taking me in the basement, showing me his shop. And that was the only time I remember him talking to me. But my mother was a very quiet person, too. And I remember when my little sister was born quite a lot younger than I was, she got old enough to talk, and she just talked from the moment her eyes opened to the moment they shut. And my mother, I'd come home, and she'd go, ah. Oh. She'll never shut up. And uh, <laughs> if you're listening, Amy, you know, that's what she said. Um, and so, uh, and my mother had visitors, and they'd come, and they'd talk the whole time we're there. And when they'd leave, she'd go, oh, I'm so glad it's over. Uh, because she didn't really want to talk a lot, which was okay, because if, if you got something to say that's important, you talk all the time, it's not the same, is it? And when you just talk, when you have something important to say, which is what she did, then it was much more impressive. And so we're coming in to look at a story of a guy who never said anything. Didn't say anything. We've got no record of anything he ever said at all. He's going to become a main player in this story as God himself will trigger an event or time it out exactly right so that at exactly the precise time something happens. And we're going to be looking, uh, first of all, at Luke chapter 10. Because we've got to set this story up. It's going to take us, this is a, a probably at least a year or more before Christ is crucified as we start here. And then we're going to jump ahead to about a month before Christ is crucified, which will trigger another event, which will put us into right in the Passion Week, as it triggers not just one, but a couple of events. <coughs> okay, we're in Luke chapter 10, and I'm looking at verse number 38. It came to pass as they went, that's the disciples, that he entered into a certain village, that's Jesus leading them, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. And Martha was much comforted about with much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bitter therefore that she helped me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. <clears throat> and so we find a place in Bethany. It's two miles outside of Jerusalem. It's a little town called Bethany. And it's uh, west, you go west, up over the Mount of Olives, over two miles out of the gate of Jerusalem to a little place called Bethany. And there's a, a couple of sisters there, Mary and Martha. And Martha loves to talk and loves to serve. And she's a wonderful server. And she's also a talker. 
she'll tell Jesus what's on her mind. And Mary is a wonderful listener. She's a listener. She listens. And Jesus said, that's a good choice. Uh, and so we know that these two ladies, uh, sisters, lived together in Bethany and that Jesus frequently went there. If he's coming anywhere near Jerusalem, he's going to go to their house and eat dinner with them and they invite him and they invite whoever else is coming too, which would be the disciples. And so the disciples have been here several times. They've got to know Mary well and uh, <clears throat> they make a regular stop here whenever they're near Jerusalem and Mary and Martha take care of everybody and Martha is the cook and main bottle washer and she's taking care of business. Two of the gospel authors, that's Matthew and John, were, of course, part of the disciples. Mark wasn't. He was, a, we believe, a grandson of Peter. And so I'm sure he was around and had been to this house. And then Luke, of course, was a, a different. He wasn't Jewish. And so the, the two of them had been here time and time again. And when they write the record out, they say, we went to Mary and Martha's house. Mary and Martha's house. And that's what you hear. All right now we turn over to John chapter 11. That only sets up the event that we're looking at. In John chapter 11... We learn a new piece of information. John chapter 11, we're about a month or so, maybe five or six weeks at the most, before Passion Week, before Jesus is coming uh, to be crucified. <clears throat> chapter 11, verse 1. A certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And so we learned for the first time that Mary and Martha have a brother. And his name is Lazarus. And we have no record that he ever said anything no words, nothing. Which is very interesting. We'll think about that in a minute. Verse 3. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. So, when you go to Mary and Martha's house, Martha's a whirl around, running around like crazy, taking care of business, serving, cooking, making things happen. Mary's not as charge as Martha. She'd like to sit and listen to Jesus and she does. And then there's Lazarus. Nobody mentioned him. As far as we know, until the day he died, he didn't exist. <laughs> Nobody said a word. They've been through the house over and over and over again. Nobody said where's Lazarus? Did he say something? They pretended it was like he didn't exist. And so here's a man who's very quiet. He's behind the scenes. He's not saying anything. He's not making decisions. He just takes care of his own little business and uh, he lives there. But when they send him the message, he says, you love Lazarus and he's sick. You love him. And he's so, so when you go in the house, you say, well, who's he going to be attracted to? Well, the one that talks the most? Maybe the one that's sitting right by his feet all the time. He's equally attracted to Lazarus 
who doesn't say anything, doesn't get involved, stays entirely out of the way. And Jesus is like that because he knows people. He knows not everybody's the same. And so he's very attentive to Lazarus and to this man who doesn't talk. He has made a good friendship. Verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And so Lazarus is sick, and Jesus says there's a reason for the sickness. It's the glory of God, in particular, the Son of God. So there's a reason he got sick. Didn't you get sick because just that's what happens. There was a purpose in it, and it was going to trigger an event, him being sick, and that was going to be for the glory of the Son of God. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he loves them all, like we said. When he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. And after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go unto Judea again. And his disciples saying to him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, go thou hither again. So the last time Jesus was in the main city of Jerusalem at the temple, he had healed a man. And the man got up and jumped around, and, and he, was, he was actually blind. This one was blind. And he got walking around. Everybody said, well, I know him. He's blind. He ain't blind anymore. Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day. And so they called the guy in. Who do you think you are running around? Well, he said, all I know is I used to be blind, and now I can see. <laughs> and they said, well, who did it? Well, Jesus did it, he said. And that's the one who I put my faith in. And so they got to Jesus and they grabbed stones. Out of, of course, in the temple there's stones everywhere because they've been building walls and things for years. And they grabbed stones. So we're going to stone you right here and now. And Jesus did like he had done before. He just disappears. He walks into a crowd and he's gone. And I've always said, and I still believe, that he was able to reach into your brain and fix that little thing in there that recognizes people. All right, we all look around, we recognize everybody, right? We got a thing in our mind that says, okay, that face I know, right? But Jesus could fix that. He could change that and make it. He walked right through crowds on various occasions, and so he disappeared. So they said, well, last time we went, they, they were going to kill you. We can't just go back there again. All right, <clears throat> verse 9. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If any man walk in a day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of the world. And if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he says, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. My go that might wake him out of sleep. And so he said, there's, there's a time to do something, even when it's day. And I'm waiting for the exact time, and at the exact right time, I will do what I need to do in the daytime. Can't wait later until it turns into night, and we can't see what we're doing. We're waiting for the day, and now I'm going to take action, and he's going to pull that trigger. All right? 
And so he says, uh, Lazarus is sleeping. I go to wake him up. Verse 12, the disciples said, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. They thought that he had spoken of taking rest and sleep. And Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. The intent that you may believe, nevertheless, let us now go unto him. All right. And so I want you to see, he says, uh, we got to wait till the time is right. Go to Lazarus because the time is the right time. We're going to wait for, and he wants them to know, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm happy. I'm happy right now. We're going to go over there and uh, we're going to see Lazarus. Now, what we don't know yet, but it comes up in the text, is that when Jesus, where Jesus is, he's on the other side of the Jordan River. And so he gets sick, it doesn't look good, they send somebody out, takes two days to get there. So he's going to come back, it's going to be two more days, but he waits two days. And so as the person goes, he, Lazarus is still sick, he goes out and he says, well, if you're coming now, he said, I'll be there when the time is right. And so when Jesus decides to take the two-day journey over to Bethany, he waits two days. Okay. So when he gets the message, Lazarus is dead. By the time he gets them, of course, they don't know that. Jesus knows, but they don't. And so he gets the message, Lazarus is sick. And so it's four days before Jesus gets there. He waits two days, and then two days traveling. When he arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. All right, now, let's just think of what he said, all right? There's someone you love, all right? This is somebody you love. We don't know why he never said anything. But you love Lazarus. You love Lazarus, which is the driving force to get him to come. Jesus said, I know there's a right time, and I will arrive at the right time, and I want you to know I'm glad about this, and here's the reason. This is for the glory of God. It's for the glory of me. Right? You're going to show my glory by this event. So there's been no mention of Lazarus all the time they've been going there. And now finally he's dying. And the Bible says, oh, yeah, he, there was a brother in the house. You know that. We know anything about him. What do we know about him now? You don't know nothing about him now except for Jesus said he's dead. All right. Now, one of the things about this. Is it's a it's a month or so before the crucifixion week, and we always say, and I've said this myself, and have changed my opinion. Uh, we always say that he went to Bethany because it was outside of Jerusalem, two miles out of Jerusalem, and he could stay in Bethany and be out of the danger zone of Jerusalem. But when he gets to the, uh, to this place, we think, well, he's 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 uh, out of harm's way if he stays in Bethany. 
What would Lazarus, do you think, what would he say to his sisters? And they said, we're going to send for Jesus. What did everybody else say? They said, don't go there. You can't go there. The disciples said, don't go there. It's dangerous for you. They want to kill you there. They tried last time, and you somehow got out of it. Don't go there. And I'm sure Lazarus, when, when Martha says, we're getting Jesus over here right away. And I'm sure Lazarus said, no, it's okay. Don't bother Jesus. Especially don't bring him here. Because we're close to Jerusalem enough so that it could be dangerous Jesus. All right. So, this man who almost doesn't exist, all right, uh, Jesus has taken note of him, and now he's triggered, of course, the event that will come up, all right. So, uh, verse 28, we'll skip down to verse 28. <clears throat> when she had so called, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The master's come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came unto him. Jesus was not yet coming to the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. And the Jews then, which were with her in the house, comforted her when they saw Mary. She rose up hastily, went out, followed her, saying, She goeth to the grave to weep there. When Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. If you could have come on time, he wouldn't have died. So she's a little accusing. Martha said the same thing. And he said, verse 33, Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, and groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And said, Where have you laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should have not died? And Jesus therefore again groaning in himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. And so uh, here's the question. Before Jesus left, he said, I'm glad. He's in happy, he's happy mood. I'm glad. Now he gets there, and we see the only time, well, not the only time, but one of the only times that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And why do you think he's weeping? He knows what he's going to do, right? He knows he's going there to raise him out of the grave. And why do you think he's weeping? What is there about what happened that makes him weep? Um, some people have said, well, you just look at the sorrow of everybody else and you share in the sorrow. And I suppose that's a possibility, but I think it's much more uh, to the point than that. Lazarus had lived a quiet, private life. Therefore, he had spent a lot of time 
behind the scenes, being ignored, not paying attention to them. And for people who serve the Lord with that kind of quiet spirit, you understand that they are going to be rewarded very well in heaven. So this quiet, gentle man has got sick and died, and he's gone to heaven. All right. And now, for the glory of God, he's going to raise him up. And Jesus, it just hurts him a great deal to do it. And I'm sure, I don't know who said it, I'm guessing Gabriel, because he's the, the messenger up there. But he comes to Lazarus, who's happy. And he's been there for four days. He's been in heaven for four days, and he's happy. This is wonderful. He's being rewarded for his quiet service. And all the things that nobody noticed come to find out God noticed. And God's rewarding him in heaven. It's a wonderful experience for this quiet man to go to heaven. And Gabriel comes back and says, you, the master requires your assistance. You've got to go back. You've got to go back. He's going to send you back down and enter your body again and be back down there. And if you ask me, that's why Jesus wept. Because Lazarus is coming back from the most wonderful place he's ever known, from the place where he's been rewarded for all of his faithful, quiet service. He's going to come back down here, and he's going to do it for Jesus. He's been told, I believe, you've got to go down there for the glory of Jesus. And so he's willing. Yeah, if that's why it is, I'll go back. And Jesus would rather not. Would rather not. Because when he gets here, it's not going to work out very well for Lazarus. No. You say, well, what do you mean? He got risen from the dead. Yes, he did. All right. Verse 39, Jesus says, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. He'd been dead four days. Jesus says, said I not unto thee, thou wouldst believe, thou should see the glory of God. Once again, you're going to repeat it. You're going to see the glory of God. And they took away the stone, the place where dead was laid. Jesus lifted up his eyes, said, Father, I thank thee that thou heard me. I know that thou hearest me always. Because of the people who stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. Jesus said to him, Loose him and let him go. All right. Now, here's the problem. 45. And many of the Jews which came to Mary had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. And from that conversation, Caiaphas said, we've got to kill him. The only thing we can do now is kill him. He's raising people from the dead, and we got to kill him. So Jesus went from, 
I'm glad to, I'm terribly sad. He's got to come back. And now he's going to suffer along with me. All right. The power over death that Jesus raised is in verse 45. People believed on him. That's the glory of God. Here's Jesus. You believe him. You trust in him. That's what God wants. That's, it says many people believe. And it is, the Bible tells us, the desire of Jesus Christ and of God himself that he should bring many sons to glory. All right? So he wants the number as high as he can get it. The raising of Lazarus does more to raise the numbers than anything he's done recently. A lot of people have abandoned Jesus up in Galilee, turned their back on him. But now when he raises Lazarus, people say, well, that's enough for me. <laughs> You'd think so, huh? You'd say, <laughs> that's enough. He pulled this guy out of the grave who's been dead for four days. That's an amazing feat. Right? So uh, we think that he went to hide himself but he triggered an event by timing that would bring glory to God because he arrived after his dead four days. And the Jewish mindset is that when you die for three days, your body or your spirit hangs around and watches. Make sure everybody's sad enough <laughs> and, and uh, watches to see how your behavior is. And that's why Jewish funerals were so wildly emotional because they were thinking, oh, he's right there. We got to really act like we miss him. And they hired mourners. They hired flute players and everything. And they did their best to put on a display of sorrow. And after three days, then they believe that spirit disappeared. Now it's day four. Where's Lazarus? Well, it doesn't matter now. He's gone out of our sight, out of our reach. He's gone. And Jesus comes on the fourth day when he's supposed to be gone and raises him from the dead. So the Jews are very impressed. Say, wow, that's really something. And it, 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 four days dead, yeah, it really is something. All right. Now, chapter 12 of John. Now we're moving up to almost Passion Week, chapter 12. Then six days before the Passover came to Bethany, and Jesus, six days, came to Bethany, where Lazarus, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead, and there they made him a supper. Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them, sat at the table with him. And so, uh, he comes on Friday. Can't travel Saturday, it's a Sabbath. So, he arrives in Bethany on Friday. And Saturday will be the Sabbath day, Sunday, he'll ride in on the donkey. All right? Sunday is Palm Sunday. So he's two days before that, he arrives in Bethany, and they said they're going to make him a supper. We think that the supper was on Tuesday night, not on this Saturday. He arrives there, and he say, well, he's outside of Jerusalem, so he's safe out there. Right? Right? Well... They got to make him a supper. Let's see what it says. All right. And it doesn't say in this gospel, but in another gospel, it says the supper was out the, at the house of Simon the leper. 
Simon the leper. All right, what do you know about him right away? So you just say his name. What do you know about him? If he's got dinner in his house, he ain't got leprosy. <laughs> you got leprosy, you can't have a dinner at your house. Nobody will go near you. All right, so if he's known as Simon the leper, and he's having the biggest dinner for the whole town in his house, and then he's probably been healed. And who heals leprosy? Jesus. And so there's no question that in Bethany, Jesus is really something. Simon, who probably has the biggest house, says, I will host the dinner. I want to host the dinner because my got the biggest place. And so we'll get everybody we can. After all, there's Simon, who's well, can have the dinner. And there's a guy that a month ago was dead. We're having dinner. Just to be happy about it all. Verse 3. This triggers this next event. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard very costly, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. And then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, had the bag and bear what was put there. And I'll be, pay close attention to what Jesus said. Then said Jesus, let her alone. I like that. Leave her alone. Stop. Leave her alone. Against the day of my burying has she kept this. For the poor always have you, have you with you, but me you not have always. And so he says to the disciples, leave her alone. She's done something. And I want you to explain what she's done. Right, so somewhere Mary... bought these spices, spikenard, and we believe it's about a year's wage. What you would earn in a year to buy this particular very fancy perfume. So it's not something you just, yeah, go down to the store and get it today, you know, use it tomorrow. No, 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 no. So if you're going to buy spikenard, it's in a sealed container, closed up, and uh, you're going to store it, and you're probably going to keep it for your own death. And so you're either going to use it to, uh, as an investment, possibly it could be an investment, or it's, it's a little more than that. You're going to bury yourself and use it for that. So you don't use it. You put it on a shelf somewhere and you store it in a safe place. And she has bought this. And Jesus said, uh, she's done this for me, my burial. So somewhere along the line, as she gets to know Jesus, she said, you know what? When Jesus dies, I think I'll use it for him. That's what I'm going to do. Instead of me using on myself, who cares? I'll be gone. You know, I always tell people, once you're gone, who cares? You know, 
What are you going to get buried in? Who cares? Get in the ground, forget about it. All right? And once I'm gone, I don't care. She says the same thing. Once I'm gone, I don't want you wasting that on it. I could really use it for Jesus. And I've decided that I'm going to save this thing in my cupboard. And when Jesus dies, I'm going to use it for him. And so somewhere early on, she buys it, stores it. And then later on, as she gets to know Jesus, she makes the decision. I've decided I'll use it for him. But every time Jesus is with them and the disciples are there and he's talking, he keeps bringing up the topic, as it explains in the book of Luke, he spoke of his decease. Or that means I'm going to die. And he keeps talking about, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And he mentions it to his disciples very graphically. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me and they're going to kill me. And they go, yeah, okay. Gone. He told them over and over and over again. And when it happened, they were stunned like they never heard it before. Like they weren't listening when he said it. Mary has heard him say that without a doubt. And when Martha said, we're going to get Jesus down here to help our sick brother, and I'm sure Lazarus said, no, they're only going to hurt him if he comes here. And, and she said, no. You know, Mary said, you know, he's always talking about and he's going to die. And I have a feeling if he comes here this time, this will be it. Now that's the only person who believed that. The only one. All the disciples, even John, every time he said, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me, and they, they all said, well, that's in the future. Maybe 20 years from now. It's certainly not today. Nobody believed him. Nobody believed him. But Mary did. And so she now makes another choice. I'm going to save it for his burial. And then she thinks, you know, these people in Jerusalem are bad people. And they're violent. And they're apt to take him and kill him somewhere. And, you know, uh, it's... It's interesting that they didn't just murder him outright. Because they did that. Who did they kill just outright? Stephen, right? Stephen, after Jesus rose from the dead, Stephen's preaching. They just dragged him out and killed him right there. They didn't care whether the, Jew, whether the Romans were around or not. If they want to kill you, bad, now they're going to find a way. Or they're going to get assassins. That's what they hired to kill Paul. They had 20 assassins that said, we won't eat today until we kill Paul. Uh, there's a lot of ways they could have killed Jesus. But the trigger wasn't pulled yet. All right. Trigger wasn't pulled yet. And so, anyway, where was I? Um, if, the, she come, if, they, if he goes to Jerusalem, and it is Passover, he's bound to go to Jerusalem during Passover. Matter of fact, the next day he rode in on a donkey right into Jerusalem. She was right. 
And so she said, I got to do this before he dies. I say it was going to save it for when he was dead, but if I don't do it now, I might not get the chance. And so she goes in where the feast is and breaks open the box and cracks it open and then pours it on his feet also and on his head. And she takes her hair and pulls it down and wipes him off. And, and there she's done it. It's the last act of love that he will experience before he goes to the cross. There's no other. His disciples abandoned him. And they left him to the wolves. And the wolves did, you know what we explained Sunday, you know what they did to him. And then, of course, took him out and crucified him. And so nobody else gets a chance to say to Jesus, I love you. And she takes this a whole year's wages, pours it on his feet, wipes him with her hair. And uh, she expressed love in this most unique way with this extremely expensive perfume, not like any perfume you've ever used, okay? Maybe some of you buy nice stuff. Sorry. <laughs> this is spike nerd. It's, it's like... I, I can't even explain it, all right? But the smell would be very, very intense. And I believe, just my own opinion, that when she anointed his feet with that spike nerd, that when those guys nailed the nails into his feet, they could smell spike nerd. Because it's not, like I said, not perfume. It's something much more potent than that. And so here's the last moment of love is triggered by Jesus coming to dinner because everybody's so happy about Lazarus. Everybody's thrilled with Lazarus and what happened to Lazarus. And so uh, Jesus said, she saved it for me. And yes, yeah, she changed her mind. And she changed her mind again and decided to use it before he was dead. All right. And invest it in him. I'll anoint him now after he's dead. It's too late. So it's the last great act of love that Jesus will experience before he dies. We believe it happened Tuesday night. Because... You saw what happened. There was another trigger pulled. Verse 4, again, chapter 12. And said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? As he said, not that he cared for the poor, because he was a thief, had to bag and bear what was put therein. His whole year's wages just got poured on Jesus' feet. He said, why wasn't that given to the poor? I could have cashed it in, put the money in the bag, and I'd have had it. It would have been mine. And Jesus said, leave her alone. 
And he got mad, and we think Tuesday night was the night that he snuck into town, went into the temple, and said, you want him, you pay me, I'll take you to him. And so Jesus came in Wednesday into the temple and left and uh, didn't return until Friday. And you know that the Passover was a secret dinner. Remember we said that? It's a secret dinner because you had to keep it from Judas Iscariot. So this triggered Judas Iscariot that night to also go into town and sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And uh, so he's right in the middle of it. Now something happens here that I want to get to. Uh, Chapter 12. Verse 9. I want you to see why Jesus wept. This is extremely emotional moment for Jesus. He'd gone to the tomb of, tomb of Lazarus. He's got to raise him from the dead. He's got to do it because as many people are going to believe and it's an opportunity for him to gain people into his camp. All right. And so at that anointing of Mary's feet, verse 9, much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there Jesus. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, Lazarus has become the center of attention. You know, there's a guy two miles outside of town that Jesus raised from the dead. Well, I'd like to see that. Well, you can go out there. He's right there. And they're having this party in Bethany. So let's go. Maybe we can see. Jesus will be there. Yeah, that'll be cool. But wait, I want to see that guy. That guy was dead for four days and he's walking around. He was fantastic. Let's go see Lazarus. And so a whole bunch of the Jews out of Jerusalem go out to see Lazarus, verse 10. But the chief priest consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Because by the reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. So you wonder why Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Because he's going to raise him from the dead. And you think, that'd be fantastic. That'd be great. Now, he's raising him to what? Now he's on their hit list. He's on their list. He's number two. We got to kill Jesus first if we can. And we're working on that. And Judas Iscariot is triggered by Mary's pouring out of emotional love to Jesus by anointing his feet. And he's triggered by that. That's his trigger event that leads him to go out and saying, I'm getting nowhere here. And he went out that night and he didn't get a year's wages. He got 30 pieces of silver, which was considered... Not much money. I think it comes to, if, if we did it in our money, something like $27. Because it was the price of a slave. All right? If you're going to buy a slave, it costs you 30 pieces of silver. And so you got property. It's just some property. 
And they said, we want, you want, we'll buy Jesus. We don't think he's worth anything because they're, they're greedy like him and they understand his greed. And they say, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. And he's thinking, that's better than nothing like I got tonight at the dinner. And so he agrees to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And that is what triggered him was Mary's love and Jesus accepting it. And Jesus said to him, shut up. So many words, leave her alone. Don't, don't be bothering her. And that sent him over the edge. It was his triggering event. So we have the triggering event of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And Jesus not arriving until he's already dead four days. Precisely the timing needed to convince them that this was a really miraculous event. Right? So that's the triggers event. Triggers Mary to want to express her love to Jesus and pours out her heart to him by pouring this onto his feet. And then uh, triggers Judas to sell him. And that puts us on Friday night when he goes out of the Passover room. Jesus said, go do what you got to do. And he left and came back with the crowd, and they arrested Jesus uh, Friday morning uh, at, at uh, early in the middle of the night. They arrested Jesus. So, what about Mary's act of love? What's so special about how does she know when nobody else knows? How can she comprehend in her mind that he's about to die when he's told the other ones over and over and over again and they don't believe it? They're totally shocked. When they come to arrest Jesus, they're swinging swords, you know, making wild moves. Jesus says, stop, stop. And you know how he warned Peter. I talked about the warning of Peter over and over and over again. And it didn't go in, didn't go in. What, what's different about Mary that she knows this is it? Is there something about Mary that's unique? So that in her mind, she understands him better than everybody else. Yeah, there is told us what it is. She listened. She listened. She listened to Jesus. Whenever he's around, she's right there sitting at his feet, listening. She's listening. She's listening. The more he talks, the more she hears. The more she hears, the more she comprehends until she can tell by his tone of voice that this is it. This is the end. If I'm going to act, I've got to act now or he'll be out of reach. And of course, he was out of reach when they took him out and crucified him. He was under the control of Pilate, and Pilate could release the body. He never would have released it to Mary. Uh, he wouldn't have done that. He only released it to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus because they were on the Sanhedrin. They were political people on the Sanhedrin. 
And so she was right. And all her consciousness of what's going to happen to Jesus comes from her listening to his voice. And that's what Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice and they know me. They know me. And so as we're reading about Jesus and we're coming up the events, we have this case uh, four days or so before he dies that Mary anoints him with this as she has processed in her mind by listening to Jesus that this is her last chance, her last moment. And she pours it out in what? In worship, in adoration. She loves him. And, and thankfulness, I mean, the, the high points of worship you know, come in three different ways. There, there is adoration where we just plain love him. And there's praise of him for wonderful things he does, which for her would have been the raising of her brother from the dead. Uh, and then there is thankfulness as the third on the list of things that we do when we worship. Why? Because her brother's sitting across the table. He's sitting somewhere right there next to Jesus. And she's looking at his brother and pouring this on Jesus' feet and on his head and kneeling down on her knees, wiping it with her hair. Just totally lost in worship. And look around the room. There's other people who love him there. Look another day or two. Nobody. Nobody cares. Nobody loves him. Nobody wants anything to do with it. Kill him. Kill him. Kill him. Kill him. And that's what they did. So in this last moment, this lady who's been very attentive to Jesus uh, understands and steps into an act of worship. Thereby, she raises herself above all the disciples. Yeah. All the others. And she comes almost right to the top of the list of people who lifted themselves higher than what was going on. Judas, he went down. She went up to the high worship and the high praises of God. He went down to a betrayer and a thief. He got down as low as he could go until he killed himself. All right? So, tied up in these very emotional days for Jesus, this wonderful triggering event it creates the highest love in the same room at the same time. The highest love and then what? The lowest betrayal. All in the same room, all at the same time. Triggered by the action of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead for which he was sorry because Lazarus was now came back to what? pretty unpleasant circumstance. Uh, he's now on the hit list of those people. So Jesus would give his life and miraculously save the disciples who were also on the list All right. and Lazarus 
Because once they killed Jesus, that's it. That's enough. We got it all taken care of, which we know wasn't true. <laughs> I got to stop. Thank you.